Welcome to Dyke Dive, Last Call. This is our first episode of the Dyke Dive series. I'm your host, Dr. Marie Cartier. And in this series, we're going to dive into the rich history of lesbian bars. Boy, it is rich. We'll talk to owners of the past who bravely opened their doors at a time when being gay was a crime. We'll explore the disappearance of these spaces and the people who fought to keep them alive. And we'll hear from a new generation of activists who are bringing back these vital community hubs. So I hope you'll join us every week as well as tonight as we explore the stories of the people, places, and movements that have shaped the vibrant LGBTQ plus community we know and love today. I wanted to give you a few highlights of what we're hoping to do, and then we're going to dive into a story from the 40s and 50s. In future episodes, you'll hear from the June Mazer Lesbian Archives, one of two lesbian archives that have a brick and mortar space in the United States. We'll hear from bar owners from Chicago, New York and LA, Norfolk, Virginia. We'll hear from the creator of a virtual historic bar space around the world, L Bar. We'll hear from the activists who are creating lesbian bars today in Silver Lake, California and creating lesbian nights again at the old lesbian bar, the executive suite and creating lesbian nights now in Long Beach, California. But tonight I wanted to go into my book, Baby You Are My Religion, Women, Gay Bars and Theology Before Stonewall. I interviewed 102 people, primarily lesbians pre-Stonewall, for my book. And one of the stories that's really moved people, it was kind of profiled on the web a little bit by a few people who've seen it. It went a little bit viral. So you may have heard it. But if you haven't, it's Myrna's story, and it opens my book. I would stay on the phone. That was my lifeline, Myrna told me. I came out as gay in 1945, the year that the war ended, Myrna Curlin told me from her home high in the Hollywood Hills of California. I was dating a softball player that I met at the gay bar. I met her at Mona's, or else maybe it was the paper pony. My first night in a gay bar was freedom. I had a gay male friend, and he took me there. Myrna was in the gay bars for eight years. She showed me her treasure from the 40s, a gold softball on a necklace chain from her first lover, inscribed with the initials from the professional softball league to which women belonged while the men were in the war. You know, if you've seen the film League of Their Own, or you saw the series that came out in the summer of 2022, League of Their Own, a lot of those women were lesbians. They didn't get to say that in the feature, but they did definitely get to preview that in the TV series. So Myrna was dating one of those women during the actual time. And just sidebar, if you want to see the uniforms, we're going to talk about that when we have the Mazer archives here, because they have a whole team full of those uniforms from the actual softball players who played them. So Myrna was dating one of those women 
and she said we went to the bar all the time. My entire social life was there. There was no other place. In fact, my book, Baby, You Are My Religion, could have been called The Only Place because every single person except one who only dated her neighbor told me that the gay bar was the only place. So that's really what we're talking about here. The only place that gay people could go, the literally the only public space, was the gay bar. So she said, you know, her entire social life was there. There was no other place. However, the first night she went to the bar, something else happened. Her father died that night. And she blamed herself, even though she knew that was irrational. She couldn't get over it. And she told me, I'm Jewish and we lost so many people in the Holocaust. I felt it was my duty to have children. There was no other way to have children in the 50s without getting married to a man. I married someone I disliked. That's what I felt I deserved because I was gay and I felt so guilty. I understand this a lot, you know. I mean, women are always expected to marry and have kids. I mean, I was, I'm 60, and I was well into my 50s, and people were still asking me if I was going to have kids. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm Catholic, but I'm not the Virgin Mary. So <laughs> I think that uh, it really makes sense for women during this time when the Nazis were trying to eradicate the entire Jewish population, Jewish women were under an extraordinary pressure. Women are always pressured to have kids, but Jewish women were under extraordinary pressure to reconstitute the race that was being wiped out. And so Myrna, like every Jewish woman, was really responsive to that. And she wanted to have kids. She wanted to repopulate her race. At the same time, she was gay and she wanted to experience her gayness. At this time, there was no other way to have kids. This is not the turkey baster time. This is a time where you had to marry a man, partly because gay people are mentally ill until 1973 by the profession. So this wasn't like, are you going to lose your kids if it's found out that you're gay? This is a time that you are losing your kids because gay people prior to 1973 are mentally ill by the profession. It's not until 1973 that homosexuality is removed from the diagnostic manual. Gay people are also sinners in every major and minor religion, and they're also considered the nation's highest security risk. So the gay bar becomes these four walls you know, there is, it's a breathing space between a rock and a hard place. And for Myrna, it was a space, a space of freedom, a space of belonging, a space of coming into herself. But she wanted to have kids and she felt really torn. So she married a psychiatrist. I mean, she's a good Jewish girl. So she marries a doctor someone to whom she would never be able to tell her secret. Her husband's practice was very involved in actively trying to change the sexuality or sexual deviancy of his clients. And you know, almost any psychiatrist's practice at that time 
would have been that way because gay people were mentally ill a priori, meaning just by being gay, you were mentally ill. And it's not going to be till 1973 that that's removed. So here we are 20 years before that time. If her sexual past and preference had been known to her husband, in all likelihood, she would have lost her children. This story from Myrna came as I was packing up my things. For the interviews that I did, I talked to people from one to three hours. And we'd been speaking for about three hours, Myrna and I. And I always had, you know, a final question. Is there anything you want to say about what the bars meant to you? And I really meant when she went to the bars in the 40s, I didn't know there was another story. She told me a story about when she did not actually go to the bars, but when she made sure the bars were still there when she was married. Myrna, well, I had insomnia. I used to phone up all the gay bars just to hear them answer the phone, just to hear the noise. Oh, yeah, me. So you'd call and just be on the phone? Myrna, no, I would just hear the noise and the laughter in the background. I just wanted to be there. Me. It helped you just to know it was out there? That's a really special story. Myrna, yeah. Oh, God. So by that time in our interview, we were both crying. And Myrna, you know, gestured to me that she had this list of phone numbers, the bars that she went to in the 40s, and she would wake up with insomnia. You know, I feel like if I was sleeping next to somebody who could legally have me lobotomized, I wouldn't sleep at all. And so she would get up and she would call that number, the first number on her list. And she would wait till somebody picked it up on the other end and then just listen. Listen to people laughing, listen to people talking. She just really wanted to make sure it was still there. And then when they hung up, she would call the next number. And then she'd call the next number. And then she'd call the next number. And she told me that she really needed to know that there was a place where people like her could be free. And even if she couldn't go there now, she needed to know that it was out there. And in the 14 years that she was married, and she did have two daughters, she did repopulate the race. She said that she only talked to one of the bartenders who picked up the phone one time. And what she said was, is there an age limit? Because she was trying to figure out if she was still going to be able to go. She did finally get divorced when no-fault divorce came in. And there's a coda to this story that's not in my book, but will be in the second edition. 
when I did the first reading, the launch event for the publication of this book, somebody wrote to me a few days before the launch and told me in an email that she didn't know me, but I knew her grandmother, Myrna Curland, who had passed away recently. And she thought that I knew things that she didn't know. She had found out by Googling her grandmother's name that her grandmother was in my book. And she asked if she could come to the launch event, which she'd found out also about online. And I said, yeah, but let's talk for a minute beforehand. So it was a big event at the Long Beach Gay and Lesbian Center. A lot of people came. And I met with Myrna's two granddaughters before the event. And I said to them, did you know your grandmother was gay? And they said, we didn't, but we suspected. And they came in and sat down. And when I was doing the reading at a certain point, when I talked about, like I talked about today, that Myrna wanted to repopulate the race, I stopped and I said I wanted to introduce two people to the people in the room and I asked Myrna's granddaughters to stand up and I said, Myrna, you did what you set out to do. You repopulated the race and you got to be gay later on. Her story was my 80th interview, and it was the interview that really changed the focus of my research when I realized that those four walls meant so much to people. They meant the cauldron of possibility. They meant the place that you could go in. Most people didn't enter a gay bar because they wanted to have friends. In this environment where you were so hated, you went in to see if anybody even wanted you as a friend. Did anybody want you, the gay person, as a friend? And people went into that space. They had false names because you couldn't identify, you know, you didn't want anybody to know who you were outside those rooms because you could lose your apartment, your job, your kids. But people were brave enough to go in there. And I think. You know, I think about gay people holding that public space, the gritty real estate of acceptance that was being raided, where people got beat up, but it was so important to be in community, to look at another person in the eyes and see them and have them see you and that they weren't running away and they actually were looking at you as a friend. In my book, I call that baptism, to actually see another person and be seen as a friend. It was really a miracle. The gay bars were miraculous spaces of social change. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Hey, I hope you'll join us every week for a drink here in a beautiful dyke dive. Cheers, everybody. Thanks for tuning into Dyke Dive. 
Don't forget to join us next week as we explore more hidden histories of queer spaces. Love what you heard? Don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by leaving a review and visiting us on our website, dykedive.com. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Marie Cartier signing off.